Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. And this is Kim from Black Free Thinkers. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So, um, yeah, what's going on out there? This, this is interesting. I wonder if you guys can hear me. I think I'm connected. Anyway, um, yeah, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I just want to let you guys know how much I've missed you over the past um, several weeks. Been into a lot of things, been doing a lot of things, and, um, <laughs> you know, just get a chance to kind of get back up here and put it out there. And so, yeah, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on right here. Haven't had this type of issue in a while, so let's see if it'll go through this time. There it is. All right. So, yeah, it was supposed to play a little song that I liked at the beginning of this, but I guess maybe I didn't check the box or whatever that was that was going on with that, so please forgive me, and um, like I said, I missed you guys. It's been so much happening, so much going on, and um, couldn't even begin to explain it all. But what I will say is that, you know, things seem to be getting better. So, you know, I'm definitely in a really, really happy place in my life. Um, A lot of things, you know, wonderful has been going on behind the scenes. But I want to talk about a few things before we get into our conversation today. And for those who are interested in calling in, the dial-in number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you would like to speak with me, press 1. And if you press 1 twice, that takes you off the queue. So you only have to press it once, all right? But if you press it a second time, then I'll think that you didn't want to speak with me because I changed subjects or what have you. So anyway, yesterday, Black Lives Matter Chicago had a rally, and it was in honor of Ronald Holmes, also known as Ronnie Man. And so, you know, they were out there celebrating, you know, Ronnie Man's life and, you know, really encouraging and supporting his mom because the second anniversary of his murder by the police was October 12th, which was in the middle of the week. So they decided to have the rally this past Saturday. And, you know, nothing but love there. Um, Pierre Laurie's mom was there, you know, a number of wonderful, wonderful people, and they did such a really good job. They had a balloon release as well, and that was beautiful. But, you know, we were all letting, you know, Dorothy know that she's loved and she has support. And, you know, whatever she needs, we'll work with her to try to make it happen. And so one of the things she's doing in honor of Ronnie Man is she's, you know, basically taking in donated toys 
to give to the children in the neighborhood, you know, the area schools and, you know, other groups, you know, that take toys to the children of parents that are incarcerated, mainly mothers who are incarcerated, to the children who were, you know, who are part of the foster care system, you know, homeless children, just a number of different, you know, groups that they're working with. And so I need to post that a little bit later. But, yeah, so we're asking people to purchase the gifts. They'll go to, you know, a couple of places. And we'll have drop-off sites in Chicago as well. So more information about that is forthcoming. And so, you know, I just thought it was extremely important to let you guys know what's happening here and, you know, how much we care about you guys and how much we want you all to be a part of this. So, yeah, please, you know, um, there are various types of items on the Christmas annual Christmas drive list. And, you know, some of these children need simple things like socks, you know, boots, coats, you know, soap, deodorant, you know. And we have all of those things on there as well as some educational toys, some board games. Um, I definitely made sure that there were some STEM games on there, you know, to motivate some of these children. I got a chance to meet Ronnie Man's, you know, kids yesterday, beautiful children. And so, you know, again, this is going to benefit everyone. It was a big hit last year. As a matter of fact, they had so, so many toys after they distributed the toys to the other groups. You know, they went door to door in their neighborhood basically handing out toys to the kids in the neighborhood because it was so much. And so we want to do that and do it again this year, have more than enough. Um, And, you know, we're looking at a few other places that we may send some of the gifts to. But it's for a worthy cause, you know. And, again, some of these children need basic necessities like soap, deodorant, T-shirts, socks, you know, just things like that, lotion, And so, you know, it's a variety, a mixture of things on the list. And like I said, we have some STEM toys on there. We tried to put as many gender-neutral items on there as possible. Like I said, we have boots, shoes, towels, you know, things like that, as well as teddy bears and, and a lot of things for newborns and toddlers. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to pick anything that's on the list. You can send other items as well that you think that may be beneficial to the people that are in need. So just wanted to make sure that you all knew what was happening with that. That was extremely important, and I wish you all were there so that you all could have felt the love and, you know, looking at these mothers who had to bury their children. I mean, you know, there are no words. There's nothing we can do to, you know, relieve them of that pain that they feel. You know, I couldn't even begin to imagine. And so, you know, definitely if you all have an opportunity, go and send a little note or a card to these families, you know, not just the ones here in Chicago, but all over the world. You know, you have different situations. Um, It's been interesting. It's been real interesting. Um, The past couple of weeks, you know, I just wasn't feeling it, you know, doing the show. And the week before, I'm trying to remember, it was a family emergency, I believe it was that week. 
But um, and I was just whipped, just tired. But yeah, so we've been giving these workshops. You know, I don't talk a lot about what, you know, I'm doing. You know, outside of the internet, why? Well, I mean, people need to make their own decisions. And, you know, if you're really trying to get into the community, like I said before, there are many groups, you know, in your area. You just have to look for them and find them or ask questions and maybe someone can direct you to a group that has or that's taking up the cause that you believe in, that you have a passion for. And so we gave a workshop, and it was about suicide prevention. And so there was a young woman by the name of Marcy Marcy Gerald. Good grief. We're going to start. This always happens when I'm away for a couple of weeks, so bear with me. But um, Marcy J. Gerald. And this young woman, you know, I think she was 14, 14 or 15, was walking to school well, back home from school, and she was accosted, you know, and sexually assaulted by, you know, this monster in her neighborhood. And it was so violent that they had to, you know, go in and do surgery to repair you know, areas that were torn and ripped or what have you. And, you know, I'm going to make a long story short. Basically, the guy was um, supposed to be registered on the sex offender list and somehow slipped through the cracks, and apparently he had been watching her for a while. And so, you know, when they went to court and she testified against him and, You know, it was just some things that were said, and basically, you know, he told her when he assaulted her that she told anybody that he was going to, you know, harm her family. And basically, you know, told her that it was her fault. If she wasn't so pretty, he would not have wanted to, you know, rape her. And Again, mind you, this young woman was, you know, an excellent scholar from what her mom told me, you know, straight-A student, you know, vivacious, active, gregarious, all of those wonderful things. But after she was assaulted, you know, she changed. And I can understand that. And so apparently there was some bullying by, you know, the sexual predator that hurt her and some of his, you know, friends and acquaintances. And, you know, it just, it was a horrible, horrible situation. And so, you know, the doctors had prescribed her pain medication and she was fearful of going outside. Her grades dropped and a number of things about her had changed. And apparently, one night, she went upstairs, took a bath, and came, you know, into her mom's room or what have you. And I think they were downstairs on the couch. And she laid up there. No, they were in their mom's bedroom because I remember the story, how she told it. And so, you know, she jumped into the bed with her mom, and laid down on her mom's 
arms, what have you, and went to sleep. And so the next morning when, you know, the mom woke up, you know, the mom was trying to wake her up, and the young woman would not wake up. And her mom kept trying, and then she screamed out for her son, and he came downstairs, and he looked at his sister and told his mom that she needs to call 911. And so come to find out, she took an entire bottle of Tramadol, you know, um, and, you know, she went to sleep and never woke back up. And so, you know, we were talking about that, and, you know, a few other people, you know, shared their information before this story. But this is the one that really touched me, you know, because, you know, and in this, and I just want to make sure that you all know, when we do workshops like this, there are professionals there. And so we had, you know, a licensed social worker there. We had um, a psychiatrist there and another psychologist and, you know, other people that have worked, you know, in this particular field. And for those who weren't aware, um, September was Suicide Prevention Month. And so, you know, the mom was talking about the situation, and, you know, someone asked if they had, you know, and this is, you know, another professional. This is a professional, you know, um, therapist was asking if her and the children had received therapy, are they in support groups, and the answer to that was yes. You know, she said that they, you know, were getting the support that they needed. And so her other daughter was there sitting next to her. And next to the daughter was, you know, an empty seat, and I was in a seat next to it. And so when the mom, you know, asked the baby if she wanted to speak or say anything, you know, the, the little girl, she couldn't speak. All she could do was cry. And I felt so bad. I just wanted to reach out and grab her and hug her. But I was still kind of paralyzed there. But, you know, the, the social worker got up and, you know, grabbed her and, you know, pulled her into a safe space. And they started, you know, talking and, you know, working on some projects to kind of get her mind off the situation. But just being in that position and not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, you know, that, that had a, you know, big impact on me, and, you know, it was already deep, and, you know, the conversation, just in general, and, you know, these people were sharing, you know, their experiences, and telling us, you know, what they had been through, and all I can say is it just got a little bit too heavy for me. And the the mom, you know, when she was talking about her daughter, you know, the one that was assaulted, you know, she she spoke with a lot of pride. You know, she she is proud of her baby. And she was, you know, talking about her son, the one that ran downstairs and told her to call 911. And basically, you know, the school called her one day and was asking why her son had not been in attendance to school. And the mom was like, no, he goes to school every day. 
And the school gave her the dates that he had not been showing up. And so later on that, you know, evening when he returned home, she asked him why he had not been going to school. And she had also asked him where had he been all day. And come to find out that he was going to the cemetery every day and basically laying on his sister's grave. You know, and spending the day there, you know, and he was blaming himself because he had not walked her home that day. He thought he could have done something to stop it and prevent it. And, you know, when I heard that, I was just too through. You know, just I was couldn't take it anymore. This was the first half of the workshop. And, you know, by that point, you know, I think we all were triggered. And so, you know, we took a, a rest you know, a little break so that people can get some, you know, water or solid drinks. We had a number of things there. And um, and I was sitting back and I was talking to um, a couple of the professionals that were there. And, you know, we were all a little concerned about some specific things. And so, you know, it was nice to know that I wasn't the only one who had certain thoughts, you know, about that situation. And, you know, and and most importantly, you know, we all acknowledge, especially the story about the baby going out to lay on his sister's grave every day. It was just, that was heavy. That was deep. And I left because I couldn't take any more. You know, um, you got people out here that are really hurting. And this is why we have a need for these support groups. This is why we have a need for outreach. This is why we have a need to network and have the different people in places so that we can, you know, help folks with these issues. And one of the things that I have been emphasizing for a while with, you know, some of the community and grassroots um, groups that, you know, I, I help out and work with, and, you know, we're, you know, when you're out here and you're doing the work, you're the activist, you're the organizer, whatever you want to call yourself, and you're dealing with the general public, how do you help them cope when you haven't even found a way to cope? And so this is why, you know, I'm, I'm you know, very adamant about them bringing in professionals because, we need to get the help that we need before we can go out and try to help anyone else. And then we still need professional instruction on how to talk to people. What are the right things to say to get all the resources that are needed? There are some people that would love to go to counseling, but they can't afford it. And one of the issues here in Chicago is that they have closed down, you know, the majority of the mental health you know, facilities that we had here. And so, you know, and there have been protests. You have a number of groups out here. And it's not just Chicago. This is all over the country. You know, and they're tearing down these facilities or shutting them down, and then they're taking the money and using it for their own pet projects. Now, don't believe that the money is running out because they're still receiving the same amount of monies and more, in some cases, from the federal government but they're trying to find a way to phase that out so that they can fund other projects that they deem are more important. And we need these services out here, you know, now even more with everything that's happening. 
And so, you know, again, I'm going to challenge you guys to get out here and start, you know, helping out, start making some calls. If you can't get there to the rallies, you know, make some calls, ask some questions, you know, and and unfortunately, the response, you know, in many of these cities is people who may have some, you know, um, mental health care challenges, they're incarcerating them. You know, Cook County Jail here in Chicago, you know, some of, you know, the sheriff and a number of other people, they were saying that basically too many of the people that are being incarcerated have mental health challenges and they need help. You know, they need the therapy. But what's happening, they're being arrested. And so now the county jail is being turned into a mental health care facility. And that's wrong on so many levels. But the new warden they have, you know, black woman psychologists and coming in there and revamping some of the policies and, you know, and so we're keeping an eye on this to kind of see, you know, what's happening. And so, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know, this is hard. And so when you start hearing stories like that over and over, you know, because none of the stories are the same. However, you know, the triggers, you know, and knowing some of the things that, you know, have happened not only in my family, but with my friends and most importantly with me, you know, and you start hearing these things. And sometimes it takes you to a very dark place. And sometimes it forces you to confront things that you had buried or you thought you had buried. And, um, yeah, you know, I went through a thing. You know, I wasn't sleeping. It was just crazy. And so I kind of had to pull myself together and um, work through a couple of things because, you know, got to push on, got to push forward. And so, you know, I said all that to let you guys know some of the things that we're doing. We have another seminar coming up. And I forgot to pull up my my Word doc with information on it, but we have a domestic violence workshop coming up. I'll post all of that on my Facebook wall, you know, and just like I posted the um, – because what we were doing when we gave that workshop, we were – it was a fundraiser because we wanted to raise $2,500 so that we can put a headstone on Marcy's grave. So that's what that was about and, you know, I need to push that link around again as well. I had to remind myself. Oh, so, yeah, you guys, it's been a little rough in some regards. So definitely wanted to tell you guys about Ronnie Mann. Um, want to tell you guys about TT. This is a trans woman of color, a black trans woman who was found, you know, dead, slashed up. Hey, everybody. Sorry about that. I'm not quite sure what happened, but we lost the connection, and now I am back. So my apologies for that. Not quite sure what happened, but, again, thanks for being patient. But, um, you know, I was talking to you guys about TT, and, um, you know, we definitely – 
you know, we definitely want to raise, you know, the show, raise awareness um, about what's happening. I guess someone inboxing me, letting me know that it, you know, it cut off. But, um, you know, so we'll talk a little bit more about TT. I'll go back and recap it. Thanks for letting me know. I appreciate it. And so TT was a trans woman of color in Chicago who was found, you know, pretty much sliced up, right? And the police have not been doing their due diligence in that case. Um, can't really get into too many details, but we've made note of some things. But there was a GoFundMe for TT. And so, you know, as a group, you know, we paid off the remainder of the expenses for her funeral, right? And so, you know, we definitely want to raise awareness of, you know, what's been happening with trans women across America, and especially trans women of color. There's been too much of this happening, and not enough of this is being reported, you know, and there are conversations that need to take place. And one of the conversations that need to take place is basically we need to sit down with cisgendered hetero black men or men of color and find out why they believe that trans women are disposable. And, you know, some of them just think all women are disposable, not all of them. And so this is a very tough conversation that needs to be had. So, you know, we're working through those particular issues. That was what was running through my mind. And um, yesterday, for those of you that did not know this, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the formation of the Black Panthers. So, you know, October 15th, that is the day that the Black Panthers were organized and founded. 50 years ago, my how time flies. And so, you know, it's, it's a trip. You know, we lost Asada Shakur earlier this year. And for those who aren't familiar with who that is, that was Tupac's mom. And so, you know, I'm just looking at all of this, and you have a number of them that are still around. You know, Alfred Woodbox, he was part of the Angola Three. He was just released. And, of course, everybody knows Angela Davis, and then you have Elaine Brown, and just the whole host of them, you know, that are still here with us. And so, you know, just wanted to send a shout-out and to recognize, you know, that, recognize that, you know, 50th anniversary is important. It's a major piece, you know, of our history. And, again, to bring, you know, clarity to some of this, basically some of the same tactics that were used to discredit the Black Panther Party, you know, which were untrue, you know, those are some of the same tactics that are being used to discredit Black Lives Matter. And um, this need for you guys, you know, keep your eyes and your ears open. Pay attention. You still have people running around trying to call both of them hate groups, and they they twisted the narrative in such a way that you have some black people saying that the Black Panthers, you know, were troublemakers and, you know, whiners or what have you, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. 
you know, go out there and find out some of the programs that the Black Panthers started that was incorporated by the government. You know, breakfast at school, they started that. You know, the WIC program to get, you know, dairy products and vitamins and things that they need to expecting mothers, they started that. You know, local triage centers, you know, for just to get some checkups and make sure everybody is, you know, trying to be as healthy as possible, especially if you got the sugar or you got high blood pressure. And they used to do these things. So they had their first aid centers and all. This is where this comes from. And because so many of us don't know the history, you know, that is how they can pull the wool over our eyes. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, um, you know, we have this show. And so I just think it's important that you guys, like I said, understand the history, go and look up what's happening, and um, there you go. But, yeah, I think it's important. You know, I definitely challenge you guys to go out and learn a little bit more about what the Black Panthers did, what they were trying to achieve, and why. It was so important for them to be brought down. And so you have some of this, well, not some, you have all (laughs) of the same tactics being employed, plus some. And so that's why, you know, people got to be careful out here because this is no joke. You know, people are putting their lives on the line. And so, you know, what's happening in America with the state-sanctioned violence, this is no joke. And unfortunately, for some people, they're not going to take it serious until it happens to someone in their family or, you know, someone that's friends, you know, their friends or a relative of a friend. And, again, just looking at it all, you know, we need to be more diligent and what we're doing, you know, what we're out here saying. And so it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, you would think that we would be further along. And in all honesty, we're in in a worse position than we were in, you know, at the start of the Civil Rights Movement. I just want you to think about that. And so, you know, I'll challenge you all, go out, and Google the depression and, you know, the black community, how did we survive? You know, it's important that you go and you understand what happened there and what, you know, our relatives, our forefathers and mothers had to deal with. And there were reasons why they migrated from the south to the north, you know. And um, and, and even today, with what we're dealing with, Um, in regards to race relations. And when I say race relations, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, Joe Bob over there who don't like the Negroes, right? I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about him too. You know, let's not leave anybody out. You know, my default is all white people are racist until they make a choice to not be racist, until they make a choice to go and do the research and to better understand because I've had a number of them come to me saying, we didn't know this happened. They didn't teach this in school. Why didn't they teach us this in school? And I'm like, they didn't teach us this in school either. You know, with me, some kind of way I stumbled across this stuff, 
and had some friends that were, you know, very conscious that would, you know, they would challenge some of the things that I would say and some of the things that I believed. And then one day, it's just, it was like an epiphany. And I'm like, well, damn it. And, you know, when when I realized that, you know, some of the things that I said and the things that I believed, you know, definitely had been said to me. And it was, you know, it was based in white supremacy. And so, you know, I've had to go back and I've had to change some things. I had to make some apologies, all of that. And this is why, you know, when you know better, you do better, which is why we encourage you guys to go and buy different books, to go out here and talk to the people. Sit down. I mean, you you don't have to talk to, you know, some random person on the street unless you want to. But if you sit down and talk to your parents, grandparents, you know, great-grandparents, they can tell you a lot. They can fill in a lot of the blanks. And so what's so interesting is, you know, I used to be angry. And do I still have some anger in me? Yeah. You know, still got some fire in that belly right there. You know, but I'm not as angry as I used to be because, you know, when you get older and you live a little, you kind of start seeing things a little differently. And I know I used to be, you know, really angry with my mother specifically, not only because, you know, I was strongly encouraged to go to church <laughs> and um and some opportunities were lost, if you will, because of certain you know religious beliefs, and so for a while, for the life of me, I could not figure out why. And so, you know, sitting down and having different conversations with different people, taking time out to kind of, you know, I won't say meditate, but to kind of reminisce, if you will, over the different things that have happened in my life, you know, when I was younger as well as older, and getting a better grasp of the situation. And so, you know, many of us have come to the realization that our parents did the very best that they could. And so that's the answer that you get from most adults, especially the older adults, you know, who, you know, who basically only solace and tranquility and peace some of them could ever find was through the church. Because they can go there, they can unwind, they can dance and sing and be amongst other people. You know, this is how some people found friends. This is how some people found mates, you know, and and just a number of other things. You know, and this is one of the reasons why I do not put down the black church and throw them under the bus. Because if you throw the black church under the bus, you're essentially throwing the black community under the bus, too. And you need to understand that. And I did, you know, a series, you know, talking about the difference between black Christianity and white Christianity, which kind of helps me segue into today's show. But there's a couple of other things that I definitely want to point out and get to. But like I said, yesterday marked the 50th anniversary 
of the Black Panther Party. But getting back to what I was saying there, you know, the church was, again, and we've stated this on the show on a number of occasions, for black women in particular, church was the only place that was acceptable if you wanted to be considered a respectable black woman. And so, you know, with or without a husband, okay? And that was the only place that a woman could go unexplored, if you will, because anything else, you know, she would have been, you know, frowned upon, looked down upon, scorned. So we kind of have to take this into consideration, especially with the traditions and the rituals and all of that has a meaning to it. And so while (laughs) some of us you know, were displeased then and still have kind of a bitter taste in our mouth about some of the decisions that were made, what I've come to the realization is my mother and relatives, they made the best decision with the choices that they were presented. See, nobody talks about how the choices that they were given were fucked up. So if you've got two or three choices and all of them are fucked up, you got to figure out which one to take, you know. And so that's what I'm saying. You know, if nothing else, being a part of this community has challenged me, which is why I challenge you. But it's challenged me to the point that, you know, I was always a big reader, you know, a voracious reader. But even more so now, it's like, you know, brain is a sponge, and I'm soaking all of this in. And there are times when I have to walk away because it's like information overload. And when I say information overload, I'm talking basically I'll read some stuff about things that I didn't know and start getting pissed off about it, (laughs) you know, because, you know, it's just so interesting of what's happening in this country. And one of the reasons some white people say they fear black and Latino and, and Native American or, you know, people of color, they fear them coming into power is because they feel that we will treat them the way that they treated us. And when I say treated us, I'm not saying it went away. We're still treated like shit. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why they're afraid. And so... You know, yeah, guys, this has made me more compassionate. It's made me more understanding. You know, I was always a good listener, but, you know, even more so now. And so, you know, compared to the decisions that some of our, you know, families and parents could have made, you know, in in most cases, they made the best of the three fucked up choices they had been given. And so we need to take that into consideration. And so um, it's interesting. But, um, you know, today's show is White Christian America. This relationship ain't working for me. And this is one of many conversations that I am going to have with white Christian America. And when I say having a conversation with them, 
I'm not necessarily speaking specifically to white Christian America because I've already determined and I've already made very clear, even at the beginning of this show, you know, when we started it in 2011, but I made myself crystal damn clear um, my first two shows back of this year, you know, so that was February 14th and 21st. I'm no longer going to talk to white people about racism. I'm not coming to your conference. I'm not coming to your convention. I'm not coming to your house. Don't want your money and keep that shit. Don't need your money. Don't need none of that. I'm just tired. And you know good and damn well what's happening out here. And so what's so interesting is, <laughs> you know, white people do not want other folks to judge them in the same way that they judge others. Because, you know, I've seen it in action. I've had it, you know, tossed at me. And the default for some people, for people of color, particularly black people, default, oh, well, they're just lazy. You know, funny how we became lazy when we, when we refused to work for free. By default, oh, they're a criminal. She's black, therefore she's a criminal. He's black, therefore he's a criminal. And it feeds into that, into that trope of black criminality. That's a myth. Go and do some research on that. I have given you all, you know, lists of books to go out and read. And guess I'll go on and um, pull my book list up. But, you know, so much to read and to understand. And what's interesting about all of that is James Baldwin basically stated that white people are caught up in the history that they don't know and they don't understand. That's true. And it's not only white people. You know, the same thing for people of color. You know, and and I've had people say, well, I never knew that happened, black and white. And I'm like, yeah, that happened. And this is why I challenge you guys to fact check me. I really am okay with that. I want you to go and fact check it, you know, because that will lead you to other information, which is my goal. You know, my goal is to encourage you to expand your horizon, encourage you to challenge your current beliefs and your thought processes and your thought patterns etc and etc that's very important you know the brain is a muscle you guys and we need to exercise it and so basically you know I remember I put out an article that was talking about Ida B. Wells and the anti-lynching campaign and how we needed to have another one. And this was right around the time of Ferguson. Ferguson had already broken out, you know. And so I had some white people who got angry. Why are you posting this? Because I can. And it's true. And so you have some of them that will say hate, 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 hate. It's not hate. The thing is, you're uncomfortable, you know, which is why I'm going to start posting shit again. As a matter of fact, I, I've been saying that I'm going to be writing. Ugh. I'm just someone, honestly, you guys, I don't really like to write. And it's not that I can't. I'm actually a pretty good writer. 
but um and I really don't have a choice. You know, I was supposed to start school this January and because I had so much going around, fucked around and missed the deadline. So it'll be next fall. So I'm getting everything in place now, you know, to have the transcripts and all of that sent. And um it's gonna be interesting. But yeah, you know, go out there, look that up. Interesting, you know, a few shows ago. I challenged you guys to go out and look up the 13th Amendment, slavery, and prisoners. And I hope that you guys did that, you know, because it's important for you to understand that. And there's a documentary called The 13th or 13th. And Ava DuVernay, you know, that's her project. And if you all get a chance, go and watch it. It's on Netflix. You know, it's out there. You can find it. Go and watch it. And I had, you know, someone acknowledge that when they watched that documentary, that listening to this show and reading the materials that I put out there, and while I don't post as many materials as I used to, you know, I inbox people, but I'm going to start posting again. It's time to make some more people uncomfortable. And so, and and they basically stated that, had they not been listening to this show and reading and educating themselves on the things that, you know, we've put out there, they would not have been ready for that documentary. They would not have fully understood it. And so they thanked me for, you know, assisting and in, in encouraging and challenging them, you know, to go out and read and to get a better understanding. And so it's been a media blackout about, you know, the prisoners across the country that are protesting. And some of the correctional officers that work at the prisons, they they all called in on certain days. So basically they were on strike, you know, standing in solidarity with the prisoners and said as much. And so, you know, again, of course, that's not being reported. So all I have to say to you guys is, you know, a lot of the stuff that's being reported in the media, take it with a grain of salt. Definitely take it with a grain of salt because the media is biased, period. You know, and this is why I encourage people to read media from other countries. You know, I loved me some Al Jazeera America. You know, the Young Turks, I really like them too. Uh, in addition to that, you have the BBC when I was in, when I was in France. Every day, all I would watch was the BBC, and sometimes I would watch some of the French channels. So funny, and it's like when I got there, you know, I really, really realized that, you know, my fluency in French, it definitely needs to be tuned up. But um, they were all so gracious, and so I appreciate that. But, yeah, guys, there's so much shit going on, but... Let me just, you know, read some of the books that I have. And these, actually, I'm going to read my digital books, not even the hardback. I have piles and piles of um, books here. And so, you know, most recently I bought The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. So that was the very latest Kindle selection that I purchased. 
But um, here's another one by Mark Lamont Hill, who I have a lot of respect for. And the name of his book is Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable from Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. And so, you know, that right there, I've started reading it. It's an excellent, excellent book. Um, Another book, Bind Us Apart, How Enlightened Americans Invented Racial Segregation. And, you know, we talk about, you know, segregation and all of that in this country. And I've talked about it on the show. And I've also talked about how the government is complicit. So when we talk about systemic and institutionalized racism, we're talking about the policies and the laws that are put in place to continue to oppress, you know, people of color. You know, and, you know, right here when it says, you know, how enlightened Americans invented racial segregation, you know, yeah, go back and read what some of your forefathers said and what they put in. And, you know, just like, you know, our little, you know, resident white guy who studied law for six years and all of that, you know, when he called the show asking for books, you know, that talked about, you know, like supremacy and like privilege. And it was so funny because, you know, I turned around and said, well, you know, books have nothing to do with it. You know, I can give you, let's let's talk about the real issue. You know, in the Constitution it says that I am three-fifths of a person. doesn't matter what someone wrote in a book when the Constitution states it outright. And the thing is, is that we don't read the same type of books. So no matter what I said, oh, I didn't read that book. Tell me what it's about. And, again, that is what a lot of white people do. They deny, they deflect, and they derail. And you should see it on these threads. You should see it on Twitter. Just pay attention, just so that we will not talk about a subject that makes them uncomfortable. And for the most part, we have to rope adult white people into these conversations. Why is this? And then you have the ones that come around and say we live in a colorblind and or post-racial America. That's bullshit. You know, and this is not the first time that, you know, Americans have, you know, basically leaned on that old narrative that, you know, we are colorblind, post-racial America. You know, many of them said that after the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. You know, many of them said that, you know, when the slaves were emancipated, you know, during and after, you know, um, Reconstruction. All of that. You need to go back and you need to understand and pay attention to what's happening. Um, Another one stamped from the beginning, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. I have not had a chance to touch that yet. So, you know, we'll put that there. Um, Beyond the Rope, the Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. And, you know, that looks like it's going to be a real good book, and that's why I brought up about Ida B. Wells, an anti-lynching campaign, because basically this is what's happening in America now. The way, you know, that black, brown, and red people are being slayed by the police, shot in the street like they're dogs, and that includes poor whites too. 
you know, and um, it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame, you know, everything that's happening. And, um, you know, I have a number of books. You know, you may want to pick up The Radical King, talking about Martin Luther King, and this was written by Cornell West. So I already see some eyes rolling. You know, and like I said, even when you read these things, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You know, um, yeah, you know, white trash, a 400-year untold history of class in America. And what's so interesting, and this was written by Nancy Eisenberg, and what's so interesting is I remember we were talking, or I was talking, about um, how many blacks in America you know, operate under like a Stockholm Syndrome, you know, type of sympathy or empathy for white people. And it's like we've been taken on a 400-year guilt trip. You know, what's so interesting is when I do see, you know, white people panhandling, you know, I see a lot of black people giving money because it's, it's talking about the guilt and all of that. And, um, man, anyway, so another book is White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. You know, um, that's another book. And, you know, I mean, you all can't even begin to imagine. I said I was going to start documenting all of these books and some of the people that are in my group. I was going to share with the whole group, but um, document it and then when people in my group want to read them, I can just let them borrow, you know, you know how you can send it to someone. And so, yeah, 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 guys, read. Go out and read. If you have a curiosity about something, go and look it up. You know, another book, The Hidden Cost of Being African American, How Wealth Perpetuates Inequality. And so what's so interesting about that is that there is a seminar coming up in Chicago soon, in which it's going to talk about capitalism and racism. And we've talked about that on the show and how they're, you know, inextricably, you know, intertwined there. So, you know, that's something that I would definitely have you all go out. And so, man, it's so many, so many guys. So what I would say to you is, Go on out there, get some books, you know, Kindle. Some of these things you can find on PDF, you know, and I used to post the Google books, you know, which they didn't show you everything, but they showed you enough to kind of keep you happy. And so, you know, and I've been ordering Kindle books, you know, for a long time. And so, yeah, man, y'all just go on out there and um, look some of this stuff up. Because, you know, it would actually be more cost efficient for America to level the playing field and to address wealth inequality, racial inequality, you know, sex inequality, so on and so forth. It actually would be, you know, a lot kinder to the community if they did level the playing field. But that's not going to happen. And the reason for that is because you know, working class and poor white people will lose their freaking minds, you know, and, you know, it's the truth, and which is why we see what's happening with Donald Trump and his rise, 
and the rise of white nationalism. And so, you know, let's go ahead and um, get into all of this. But, you know, over the years, you know, I've, I've told you about different books, you know, about different authors. You have Ira Katz Nelson, when Affirmative Action Was White. He did Fear Itself. Um, Khalil Muhammad, The Condemnation of Blackness, you know, a whole bunch of books, you know, that were out there. And, you know, right here, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, you know, and basically, you know, these were farmers, black farmers, and, you know, how they created co-ops and worked together. Go! Read about this, you know, the Liberty Party, 1840 through 1848, which was an anti-slavery third party, you know, and, of course, we didn't know anything about this. And so I definitely wanted to do a show about those last two books. But, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And why did I order this one book twice? I think they need hmm, how did that happen? Anyway, so, yeah, you guys, I'm looking at this. And so, yeah, go do some reading. Do some reading. Ask some questions. You know, that's the only way we're going to make it through a lot of this. And so, like I said, you know, I've pretty much decided that I'm not going to talk to white people about racism anymore. If you want to know and you're trying to figure out how to be anti-racist, how to be an ally or some people say a co-conspirator. You need to go and you educate yourself about everything else. And I don't mind you listening to this show and getting information, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, because this, this is for anybody and everybody. I make no money off of this. I just do this because I enjoy it. But, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately, it was a few bad apples that made it worse, you know, in regards to me wanting to speak to different communities about, you know, racism and activism and a number of things. And because, you know, especially, you know, dealing with what we're dealing with in a secular community, you know, we used to talk about, you know, Raina and I, you know, we used to sit back and talk about these things on the show. And basically, you know, the white secular community is just a mirror image of, you know, white America. And you have problems within the, you know, that community. And what's so interesting is that you have a lot of Booker T. Washington blacks running around in this community, you know, basically, you know, preaching respectability politics. If you'll just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and pull your pants up while you're at it, too. You know, you know, that type of mentality. Or they feel that they have to prove themselves to these white people in order for these white people to accept them. And this is just all communities, not just the secular one. It's in a Christian community. You know, just all LGBTQ, feminine, all of that. And, you know, basically, I don't even know what to say to black people in this regard. Why are you all still tripping because white people act like they don't understand what we're talking about or they just don't get it or they don't want to get it? How many hundreds of years has it been since we've been here? How many, you know, it's been well over 150 years that we were emancipated? You know, it is so interesting because... 
you know, you have different groups out here that are talking about reparations. And so, you know, they try, you know, and when I say they, I'm talking about the American media and certain white um, talking heads, political pundits, if you will, they say that black people should not get reparations. And, this is, you know, it's everyday people that feel this way, too, that black people shouldn't get reparations because slavery is over and no slaves are alive, right? And so that was one of the excuses that they were using. But, you know, they're not talking about, you know, just slavery. We're talking about the black codes. We're talking about Jim Crow. We're talking about institutional systemic racism that we still face today. Again, these things are written into the Constitution of the United States. That's what I'm trying to get you all to understand, you know, because you'll have some white people out here trying to loop you in with the rope-a-dope. Don't fall for it. My grandmother, who just passed away, you know, earlier this year, her mother was a slave. So, I mean, I'm just trying to understand, you know, where they're coming from with this. So, again, like I said, don't let them pull you into the okie doke. But it's a lot of stuff that's happening. And so, you know, segue. Basically, when I talk about white Christian America and how this relationship isn't working for me, you know, if you go and you read, you know, what I put in, you know, the description for the show, the storyboard, it will give you a better idea of, you know, what I'm talking about. And again, you know, I'm going to be talking about black Christian America and, you know, a number of other things, but... It's a lot of misguided anger. And, you know, communities of color definitely are feeling it, you know, in a number of different ways. And, again, it does not help with the political and cultural climate that we're living in right now. And, you know, what I will say is Donald Trump, you know, is making it real clear what he's about, who he's for, and and you know, and whether he wins or not, he he plans on being a force to be reckoned with. And so, you know, I talked about an article a while ago and it was written from, you know, a white religious person. And they basically stated that you know, they were pretty much ashamed of the white Christian community because they were behaving more like white people as opposed to behaving like Christians. Because it's my understanding that with Christianity, it's about love. It's about loving one another, loving your neighbors as as much as you love yourself. You know, even though some people take that loving your neighbor thing a bit too far, but, you know, that's how that goes. But... Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of interesting things coming out of this election. And either way it goes, you know, people of color definitely need to be on guard. And so there was an article, you know, in Atlanta Black Star, and it was talking about, you know, why black people basically should not be perplexed about white people not understanding racism. And in this article, they're saying blacks don't need white people to solve racism. 
And I don't I don't agree with that at all. No, I don't agree with that at all. You know, and a lot of this is Marcus Garvey, you know, uh, politics. And um, I even mentioned Booker T. Washington earlier. But, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't need, you know, to be putting this type of disinformation out there. You know, it's definitely going to take white people to solve racism because they created it. They benefit from it. And even some of the more progressive liberal whites that claim to be allies or what have you, you know, they don't want to give up their white privilege. You know, they feel entitled. And sometimes when when they're trying to prove that they're not racist or biased, they end up proving that they're more racist and biased than they realize. There's a website, checkyourbias.com. Go over there and take that test. And that's for everybody, black, white, red, yellow, green, purple. Go and take that test. Check your bias. Just Google it. And you can take that test, and it talks about implicit and explicit bias. You need to know where you stand. And so, you know, again, people of color, you know, we do play a part in this white supremacy and helping to perpetuate it. You know, and that's, you know, that's a real conversation that needs to be had. You know, I can't put it any other kind of way because, you know, we're a part of the problem. So how do we address it? And so... You know, a lot of this has to deal with power and economics. And so we, you know, we got a long way to go. It's a lot of work to do. But we, you know, we need to start. And it started, we've started on so many different occasions. And what happens is, is you have people come in and they destroy it. Like I said, we have the intelligence, we have the finances, you know, you know, the experts in our communities to, to, you know, again, build strong, healthy, you know, wealthy communities. How do we keep them? And so, again, go back, look up some of the information about, you know, reconstruction and, you know, how the government passed these different laws in which they were trying to you know, um, empower, you know, former slaves and how they'll write two or three laws that are pro-black or pro-African and then there'll be 20 loopholes, (laughs) 20 loopholes, you know, whether in that bill or another bill that totally undermined what they had given to us, if you will. You know, so they give a little, but they take a hell of a lot back. And so that's, you know, why I always talk about how there's a difference between civil rights and human rights. When we talk about civil rights, oh, they don't pay that any mind. Yeah, you all can talk about civil rights, whatever, blah, blah, blah. We'll make another bill and then write another bill after that, taking all that away and some more. But when we start talking about human rights, then that's when it becomes a problem. You know, and so, you know, and, and and again, you have some of these white folks walking around thinking things are as simple as, well, if I say this is what needs to be done, then it should be done. And it's so funny because, you know, with our little 
resident lawyer that likes to call in. He studied for six years, not realizing that black people, we have to study the law every day that we are conscious that we're black. You know, but that doesn't even matter, does it? But, um, yeah, you know, you can't just walk up and say, you know, we need a constitutional amendment. There's a process to that. And, you know, what I find interesting about some white people that will come up and give this simplistic type of answer is, you know, now that they've said it, we should believe it, and that's that. While they put forth no effort to help make these things happen. You understand? And so I just like to say hi to my little troll. Where you at, DJ Joey Jokey? Where are you? And so, um, yeah, you know, just just look at this. And this is not working for me because especially with what's happening, you know, with this election, which I'm pretty much at the point where, you know, I don't give a damn, but I do give a damn. Why? Because I'm still going to be living here dealing with this shit. And so, you know, you know, can't play ostrich. You cannot bury your head. And what Donald Trump is doing is basically he's ripping that scab, or some people say that Band-Aid, off of the festering sword infection that had already been there. It's always been there. And so this is why you hear people angry about, you know, being politically correct. And so, you know, you have different thought processes out there. You have, um, you know, some people out here who basically, you know, when they have white people asking them, what can they do? How can they help? You have one set of people that say, stop asking black people what to do about racism. Some people believe that. Some people don't. You have some people out here saying, well, just ignore racism and it'll go away. We all know that that's not going to happen. They just want you to stop talking about it because it makes them uncomfortable, right? And so, you know, these hard conversations, you know, white people need to have them amongst each other. And when you have, you know, biased, bigoted, racist, homophobic, sexist, misogynist in your presence, you need to challenge that. You definitely need to challenge what's happening. You know, some people, some white folks are like, well, one group of people tell us to speak up. Another group of people tell us to shut up. What do we do? What you do is you challenge the thought processes of the people around you. What you do is, you know, you can hold fundraisers so that we can get out there. You can come march. You can do all of that. But when, you know, when the media comes out to interview people, you need to stand to the side and let the organizers of the people of color or the people of color there to speak. Because you have too many white people trying to attest to or speak about black pain and black rage. You don't understand it. Because at the end of the day, you still get to get in your car, drive away, and be white and not have to deal with this shit. As a matter of fact, with a lot of the white progressive liberals that listen to my show, how many black people live in your neighborhood? Go look up the census information. 
I'm just real curious about that because the vast majority of white people do not have any type of interaction with people of color. Even at work, most of them don't. Some of them do, but, you know, it's, it's not, you know, in many cases, you know, a close type of relationship, friendship, or what have you. So you need to go. You need to pay attention. And well, the thing is, is that, you know, you have these different seminars and programs, conferences and conventions, and you just, I don't know, sometimes I wonder if you're addressing, you know, diversity and inviting these black people so that you can shut the other black people up. That doesn't make you anti-racist. It does not make you anti-racist. Why? Because you didn't want to invite them in the first place. But you invited one or two just so that you can say that you're not racist or you're trying to address diversity. You're full of shit. Because, you know, with many of these conventions, you know, this is why you have people out here saying that these social justice movements are elitist, okay, as well as, you know, some other groups, you know. And um, this is why, you know, I think it's important, especially with what's happening now, that we make sure that, you know, working class and poor people, you know, play a major role in what's happening. But, you know, one thing I want you all to, to just pay attention to with some of these communities, when they have their conferences and their conventions, they price poor people out of it. Poor people can't afford because they don't want you there. That's why it's that high. And then some of the people that they invite in, they claim, well, we got to pay them, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, giving someone a free hotel room and letting them table, that's nothing. It's the other ones that you had to pay $50,000 to come speak for 15 minutes and fly in them and their crew. So anyway, you know, getting with this here, you know, basically white Christian America, what are you doing? Because many of you still support Donald Trump. Many of you all still support, you know, the racism, even though it's not necessarily called by that name. And that's that's what's happening. You know, one of the biggest stories is about the white evangelicals, you know, and how they're kind of split. Because you have some that are disavowing, you know, Donald Trump, but you have a whole bunch of them that are with him. And so, you know, the challenge that I'm putting out there, especially to people of color, who are believers and attend the churches of some of these white folks and black folks out here stumping for Trump. Paula White, the hell is on your mind? Now, this is a white woman pastor that is over a predominantly black congregation. And this is her sec- her second church the first church went down in flames. You can find out information about that. But the people, the people of color in that congregation, I mean, are you all paying attention? I don't even know what to fucking say. You got people like Pat Robertson, um, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr., and a number of them. 
that are supporting Donald Trump, Daryl Scott, another black preacher. You know, I already told you all about the one bishop that wants to send all the black people back to Africa to build roads and bridges. And, you know, these people are serious. You have Omarosa, you know, and and those two singing chicks from South Carolina. I don't even know their names. I'm not even trying to know it. Don't send me an inbox telling me. I don't care. But um, what the hell is happening here? You know, and there are a number of people, black people that are, you know, stumping for Trump. I know a couple of them. And we've had conversations, that's what I'll call it, and I still don't understand, you know, and not that Hillary Clinton is any better. You know, guys, go out and take a look (laughs) about how the DNC and Hillary and their thoughts about Black Lives Matter and, you know, these grassroots and community you know, movements and groups and, um, you know, how basically Hillary is exploiting black people and the black vote and Latino people and Native American people. And so big old conversation that needs to be had. And so there was an article that, you know, I sent around and it was talking about how there was a protest and how the white people circled the black people, you know, so that the police couldn't arrest them because they knew, the, you know, the black, I mean, that the police officers weren't going to really rough them up. And it's so funny because I remember saying that on my show last year. And I said, I said, the white people need to surround the black people. And then the next line of defense needs to be disabled people. So they got to go through all of that to get to the black people. And so it's just really interesting how some of this is playing out. When I first read that article, I was laughing, and I had to call a friend up and uh, tell him about it. And I sent him the article, and we sat there, and we laughed and laughed because this is what is needed. So somebody is getting it. Somebody is getting it. So, yeah, you know, while I do come down on the white community a lot, some of you get it. And I see you're working towards to, you know, to rid yourself of the biases and the discrimination. And there is still a long way to go. But, you know, I'll give a little credit when it's due, you know. And, um, yeah, you know, it's just wild. And what's happening right now, you know, and I'm going to post that article again about why Christians need to act like they're more Christian than white. And that was written by Jim Wallace in the Washington Post. I went and found it. And, um, you know, it's, it's true. But, you know, watching that, you know, and seeing what's happening, you know, with Donald Trump, like I said, he just exposed what was already there. For those who were trying to say that, you know, we're post-racial or colorblind, you know, we need to, you know, pull you out from under your rock. You know, because there are a number of things that white people can do to be, you know, anti-racist allies. And that is more than reading one article a week, one book a week, or what have you. It, it takes more than that. And this is why you have, you know, some white people running around pointing the finger at other white people 
particularly progressive liberal whites, you know, you know, they're the ones being pointed at by other white people. And mainly these people are libertarians and Republicans. And they're stating that you have a number of white people out here, and many of them, you know, are religious, white Christians, you know, you know, out here saying that they are proud social justice warriors and, you know, they stand with Black Lives Matter. But that only came about when they got the nod from the right white people that it was okay to acknowledge Black Lives Matter. It was okay to claim that you were a social justice warrior. But see, here's the secret. It's a very open secret, but here's the secret. Many of these same progressive liberal whites ain't sent a dime, ain't sent no hand sanitizer, and we sure as hell ain't seen you on the street. So you're a proud social justice warrior that's just at home talking shit all day. What have you done? And the thing is, is that you don't have to be out here at the protest. That's not what I'm saying. Not everybody has money to donate. Okay, I'm good with that too. You know, because I mean, we do have a lot of disabled people. You know, in many, many ways, you have you know working class and poor. They're they're barely making ends meet. You know, but are you at least checking your relatives when they go into one of their sexes, races, tirades? You know, that's something that you can do. I'm just putting it out there. But, uh, you know, but if you all really want to confront white supremacy and eradicate racism, you have to do this on your own every day. And you have to put these people and these things in check. You need to start writing your government officials, your local, your state, your and start putting pressure on them to change some of these laws. You know, and that's another reason why I have such an issue with Hillary is because we all know what happened to the black community with, you know, the crime bill and with Reagan, that was Bill Clinton, with Ronald Reagan, you know, with his, you know, fight against drugs, you know, and um, his crime bill as well. And basically, you know, what Ronald Reagan didn't achieve, Bill Clinton, you know, he pretty much put the icing and the candles on the cake. And Hillary is saying that she stands by that bill, that bill signed into law. And it's a lot of things that need to we need to go back and we need to fix and change. But where are the white Christians? They should be the main ones out here, you know, protesting, writing letters, demanding changes to policies and law. Why? Because you have the loudest voice. You are the squeaky wheel. You have the money. You have the power, which is why we say you have to stop the racism. You know, and it's not just that. There are a number of other, you know, factors in that. But those are the main two that I need for you all to understand and you need to address, you know, in in addressing racism and, you know, wealth inequality and all of these things because they're all tied together. All of this is tied to capitalism. And see, and, and, and let me just go ahead and put this out here because, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of it, you know, and how cultural identities are being co-opted by the white community. Huh. 
you know, so interesting because, like I said, with, you know, poverty, anti-blackness, fear, all of those are industries. And, um, you know, they're all tied to capitalism. And so anything that black people do, you know, uh, in in Latino and Native American, if, if white people find it exotic or interesting, you know, they, they co-opt it. And then they capitalize off of it. You know, there are a lot of, you know, white anti-racist authors and speakers out there who are doing nothing but taking the words that were spoken and written by black people, you know, centuries ago, right? Uh, decades ago. And um, and you're making money off of it. And, you, and many of you aren't putting money back into the community that you're capitalizing off. And so someone told me this story. I forget who it was. But, you know, apparently they had a conference, and they were one of the presenters at the conference, and they gave this presentation on ABC, you know, XYZ. And so, you know, a white woman was in the crowd taking notes but writing furiously, you know, trying to get it all in. And, you know, they thought it was a bit strange, but they didn't think anything about it. Until three weeks later when they attended another conference and that same white woman was giving a presentation. And it was the very same presentation that that black woman gave. And it was pretty much verbatim. And the black woman walked to the front of the, you know, the crowd so that the white woman could see her. And basically the white woman was stunned, did not expect to see her there. And so when the black woman challenged the white woman during the Q&A session, you know, along came the white tears. And so, you know, that, I mean, this happens, you know, and, you know, and again, we're talking about you calling out the biases and, you know, all of these negative things and others. You also need to be able to call these things out on your own when you do it. And so I'm going to post an article. Yeah, I guess I'll start posting again. But, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it takes a lot of time to go out and research this information. And, I mean, I read a lot, you know, and I usually bookmark, you know, everything. I have the bomb-ass bookmarks, that's all I got to say. But, um, yeah, you know, putting all of this together. But you know what, white Christian America, you all supporting Donald Trump is not helping your cause. You know, and I know one of the things that we talk about on this show is how the white population is dwindling and how, you know, this is what is raising some of the fear and concern and anger in the white community. You know, you have more white people dying from illnesses and and the scientists can't figure out why. You know, you have more white people committing suicide. And, you know, the questions out there are why, you know. And, you know, there are a lot of different schools of thought on that. But, you know, with this Donald Trump thing right here, I don't know. You have some people out here asking, 
you know, is this the last hurrah for, you know, white men in particular in this country? And um, it's possible. I can't say what is or is not, you know, driving this unrest in this country. But, you know, I find it interesting that this all happened with the Obama administration. Because for those of you that aren't aware, when President Obama was reelected in 2012, you know, they were rioting on some, you know, school campuses. You know, go look up Ole Miss. Ole Miss. You know, that's one of the um, Ivy Leagues of the South. You know, I had a couple of friends that went to Ole Miss Law School. But anyway, you know, this Donald Trump thing and, you know, the unwavering support that the white Christian Americans are giving him, that speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. And so what I find interesting is, you know, these white Christians that are out here defending him, you know, they had nothing to say when he was insulting black people. They had nothing to say when he was insulting Latino, Hispanic, Mestizo, Chicano people. You know, I don't even know if he said anything about the Native Americans, but I'm sure he did. We'll just throw that into the equation, too. He had nothing to say when, you know, he was being sexist, you know, very misogynistic. You know, didn't really have anything to say about that in general until, see, and what Donald Trump did was in a real slick kind of way, even though he's made some horrible comments about women and he has he has a lack of respect for women in general, he trotted out four women who have grievances with Bill Clinton for, you know, any number of reasons. And basically, you know, he was trotting them out hoping that, you know, that would throw Hillary off her game, but it didn't. And so, you know, what's interesting about that, and this is a, you know, a, a something that this has been gnawing at me. And because I haven't really been on the internet in the past, you know, a couple of weeks actually, um, you know, I haven't really had a chance to pull up, you know, a lot of the think pieces, you know. But Donald Trump, who's, you know, a misogynist, period, how he trotted those four women out and in his own way, called himself, you know, protecting, you know, uh, you know, white womanhood, you know, you know, the white damsel in distress. And he was doing this to Bill Clinton. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is show you how, you know, he's trying to use one of the very communities that he has pretty much no respect for and use it to his advantage. And people in communities of color, namely, you know, the black community, you know, this is what happens when, you know, <laughs> you know when, when some black men are accused of, you know, harming or assaulting, you know, a white woman. And so Donald Trump was trying to play that card, if you will. And that has not necessarily been addressed. It probably has. I just haven't found it yet. I haven't really been looking, but... You know, I just wanted you all to see how he was trying to twist these things. And, you know, again, no one is talking about this, you know, and white Christian America, 
You're the ones that are financing this nonsense, not only with Donald Trump, but the government as well. You all can demand change. We can go out, we can put the petitions out, demand these changes, but that's going to have to come with protests. That's going to have to come with calling your local government officials, putting their feet to the fire, demanding that they make changes, and when they don't, vote them out. We should also be making demands that if you, you know, if you only have to serve one term as, you know, in a House of Representatives or as a senator, and you receive your salary and your pension and your Cadillac plan for the rest of your life, how backwards is that? And so we need to go back. You know, everybody wants to claim that they don't have any money. We need to stop some of that nonsense and make it retroactive. You know, forget that grandfathering shit. But, you know, if if white Christian America got here and made these demands, things would change, and they would change quickly. But the problem is these same white Christian Americans don't want to lose their privilege. They don't want to see, you know, some other people as human, as fully human. You know, and, you know, we sit down and we try to have these conversations with people. And, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, a lot of black churches take their cues from white Christian America. And so, you know, I've wanted to say to a lot of preachers, you know, I want to know why you are so focused on, you know, marriage equality and rights for the LGBT community, why you are so focused on, you know, the man being the head of the household, you know, the patriarchy, right? And this is a number of, you know, and this is not an exhaustive list here, you know, patriarchy. And then you're concerned about abortion, which basically, you know, you want people to have more children so that when you pass the church down to your kids, your little dynasty, your little fiefdom, that your children and your grandchildren's future will be secure because people will still be attending church and paying their tithes and offerings, right? And I'm just looking at all of this, but what I want to say to, you know, these black Christians out here, how in the hell are you concerned about LGBTQ people getting married, living, doing whatever they're doing, which is their own business, how are you trying to tell women how to, you know, live their lives and and making them have these children? You're trying to abolish abortion. And see, and this is the thing that gets me. How are you concerned with all of these things here, but you're not addressing the fucked up as infrastructure in the community in which your church resides. Many of these churches, you know, you know, I mean, you know, monuments that are, you know, opulent, you know, and in the middle of the hood, the streets are torn up, the schools are, you know, falling down. They use the pool, the swimming pool, as storage unit. You know, these kids are, you know, they're using books that I used when I was in school. And those were old then. Computers that have been purchased sitting in the basement of the school because they didn't have, they didn't, you know, they didn't install them. And just the poverty. How can you justify that? How can you justify not focusing on the real issues, black church? 
Because a lot of the issues that we have to deal with community-wide are not necessarily issues that a lot of white people have to deal with. So I'm trying to understand. And see, what's so interesting is, you know, with a lot of these people, black, white, red, yellow, whatever, that want to tell these women how to live their lives because this is what the Bible said. This is what the Quran said. This is what whatever holy book you read said. It's interesting because you want that, that woman to have that child. You want to force her to have that child. But once that child is born and she can't afford to feed it, then you want to point the finger at her and say, well, why did you have the baby? And when we complain about the schools being dated and the curriculum being just, you know, stale and, and all of these things, well, you shouldn't have had all those kids. Or if they do have, you know, a program in which they distribute food and, you know, do a number of other things, you know, again, in, in many cases, sometimes they want to see your income for that in order for you to be eligible. You know, in most cases, that's not it. You can just come in, sign your name, and sometimes they will be hard on you. Well, you don't live in this neighborhood, so we can't give you any food, which I think is BS, too. You know, but, you know, we're up here talking about, you know, marriage equality and abortion and all of these other things when we should be focused on the poverty you know, mainly the poverty, you know, the racism, the white supremacy. So you all don't want to focus on that. Why? Because then you have to answer questions. Then you have to be accountable. Then you'll be unpopular with certain white people who are kicking you back money or, or you know, uh, acknowledgement or what have you. You know, in the black church, it's taken a lot of cues from the white church. And so, you know, this is why, (laughs) you know, I challenge you guys to go out here and read this because a lot of this has come from the white church, you know, and those of you that have been studying that are, you know, you know, just people that like to read, you know, scriptures were used to justify slavery, and those, some of those same scriptures today are still being used to enslave the minds of, you know, communities of color. Where is the church? Why aren't you all? Why isn't the black church standing up and demanding that the white church, you know, get out here and, and pick it with them to make these changes, to force these changes? You know, it's interesting because this one pastor in California, Crenshaw Christian Center, the pastor was Fred Price Sr. His son is now the pastor of that church. It's a megachurch. And um, he did a series about race, and it tore his church apart. You know, he had members leaving, people who were once friends with him turned their backs on him, you know, and they said, don't do it, don't talk about it. You need to be asking yourself why. And we really do need to challenge, you know, these white Christians, challenge them to get out here, challenge them to demand change. You know, and it's just interesting, but, you know, when you have white people telling you that they don't believe you, 
when you tell them the things that we deal with on a daily basis, those aren't your friends. Those aren't your allies. And even now, with the cameras and the pictures and the videos and all of that, you know, you still have some white people out here saying, don't believe your lying eyes. Oh, that's not what really happened. Blah, blah, blah. So interesting how you end up losing all the audio. But, you know, again, you know, you need to start putting pressure on them. Because, you know, right here in this one article, I'll just read this little paragraph. These numbers reveal that race is more determinative than denomination or theology when it comes to people's perspectives. White Christians are, as a whole, less likely to believe the experiences of black Americans than non-Christian whites, a shameful indictment on the church. So, you know, again... And what was the name of this article so you all can go and look it up? I'm going to post it. Yeah, white Christians need to act more like, to act more Christian than white. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be said and that need to be done. But all I can do is challenge you guys to go out there and challenge others, you know, challenge you guys to challenge yourselves, right, because that's important. Because, you know, you're going to get the denial. You're going to get the deflection, and you're going to get the derailing. That's just part of the makeup. That's how it happens. And um, someone got mad at me because I call it libertarianism Jim Crow Part 2. And so what's so interesting about, you know, some of the people that I've observed that are libertarians, you know, white or black or Latino, you know, or Asian or indigenous, what have you. Um, First of all, libertarianism is nothing but Jim Crow 2.0. But, you know, with many of the libertarians, you know, you know, Z, all of the above, many of them have a disdain for poor people. And that's something I I definitely want you guys to pay attention to. You know, and with some of the laws that have been passed, like in North Carolina and Florida and Arizona, in which, you know, businesses are being given the right to discriminate, you know, against others. It's so funny because, you know, I've heard some people say that it's a libertarian's wet dream to make all of that happen, you know. And so you need to go, you need to do some research, you know, you need to look up who Ann Rand was. And, you know, her selfishness and, you know, what was going on with her and how she's a libertarian's hero or one of them, you know, you need to pay attention. So, you know, I'm not just pointing at the white Christian community, you know, I'm pointing at all of these white communities, you know, know, LGBTQ, feminism, atheists, humanists, all of you. All of you, because, you know, I've, I've been in these communities. I've seen what's happening. This is bullshit. So, you know, some of you out there, you know, you black people, Latino people, Asian, Native, white folks, you have friends that are libertarians. Ask them how they can justify the actions of some of these places with the laws, like the ones that are banning LGBTQ people from coming to their restaurants, 
um, and, you know, other ones banning black people from eating at their restaurants or, or what have you. How can they justify that and say that that's okay? Because usually the answer is, well, they don't want the people's money, then you don't go and spend it there. And, you know, it's not that cut and dry. It's not that simple. You know, I would challenge those of you that have white Christian friends. Ask them, you know, especially if they're Trump supporters, you know, how can they justify that? You know, justify, you know, up here caping for this man who has shown a disdain towards everybody because basically, you know, what he's <laughs> what he's doing out here, you know, dog whistles, all, you know, he's talking about people and he'll say, you know who I'm talking about and you know what I'm talking about. And he's encouraging his people to go to these polling places in certain communities and make sure everything is okay. So they're going to be coming to these communities in an effort to intimidate folks. But to be honest with you, you know, the last time, you know, I forget what it was, what type of election or what have you, and I, usually I'm on top of this, so this is one of those days for me. But they've made threats like this before. Do not allow these threats to dissuade you from voting. Okay, don't sit down just because the polls are saying A, B, C, D, and E. That doesn't mean that you should stay at home, you know, and, and to be honest with you guys, you know, I'm not voting for Trump, nor am I voting for Hillary. So, you know, take that, you know, as you will. But, you know, I don't believe that they're going to be coming to the black and Latino, you know, polling places, you know, strapped. But if they do, you ignore them, and basically, you know, I'm pretty sure if that happens that, you know, there would be police officers out there. But truth of the matter, hell, you know, you have white nationalists and supremacists that are on the police force that are part of the military, hell. Nowadays, you don't know what the hell you're dealing with. You know, conversations with different friends and associates talking about how they were surprised at some of their white friends who basically showed their true colors and, um, you know, with this election, with Donald Trump and, you know, and even some with Barack Obama back when. And so, you know, a lot of this is coming out. But, yeah, white Christian America, you know, I want to know, how do you all justify this? Because your silence is tacit, you know, is tac- you're, you're tacitly being complicit with this shit. So it's tacit complicity. You need to... <laughs> I don't know anymore. You know, you can talk until you're blue in the face. And with many, you know, of these conversations, you know, it's, it's, it's an exercise in futility, which is why I refuse to have them. You know, and we talk about these things on the show, you know, and take what you will, you know, take what you need from the show if it's going to help you grow as a person. It challenges, you know, your thinking. It challenges your beliefs. And what's so interesting is that you have a number of people who, you know, basically will not read anything from, you know, people who are, you know, basically people who maybe have thoughts that are total antipathy to what they believe. You need to read them and you need to understand what they're talking about because, you know, it's going to end up throwing you a curveball one day. And you're going to say, you didn't know. You know, you didn't know what was happening. And so, you know, 
it's just interesting because you got these white pastors, you know, Franklin Graham, who's Billy Graham's son, you know, and they're out here making these hateful comments about the grassroots and community organizations that are here. And what's interesting is that Reverend Franklin Graham basically told black people to listen up and obey police officers instead of protesting. And the white Christian community, particularly the white evangelicals, you know, that is the Republican base. And this is why you hear us talking about Southern Baptists and the racism that is, you know, that that resides and that basically is the foundation of the, you know, Southern Baptists. You know, I want you guys to go up, go out and Google Southern Strategy, the Southern Strategy, and how that was used basically to keep blacks disenfranchised in the South, you know, and how all of that ties into the New Deal and how things were put into place, whereas the money would be basically pushed down to the states, and then the states would administer the funds, which still happens today. But this is a way that they could discriminate against other folks because it's up to the determination of whomever to decide to give people money or not. I'll give you one example, food stamps. There are so many people getting kicked off of food stamps, and believe it or not, the state still gets the same amount of money, if not more, for the food stamp program. But if they don't have to give it to people, they can take that money and use it for their pet projects. You know, a lot of people are being kicked off of Section 8, which is a housing voucher program. There's a reason for that. It's about money. And so, you know, read. This is not an accident. What's happening is not an accident and it's sure as hell not a coincidence. And so we need to be basically looking at the white Christian community and saying, what the hell? You know, and um, yeah, you know, what's going on is, is horrible. You know, but you know, once the election is over, I'll tell you all my theory or my perceived um, conspiracy theory of what happened with this particular election cycle, you know, because I find it interesting, you know, and I have friends, we sit in the background and we laugh and we talk about this stuff and, you know, I don't even know what to say. So anyway, you know, some of your favorite preachers and, you know, and their children who may be heading up some of these churches, they've told you what they believe. You know, thing is, is that are you listening? Are you paying attention? You got people out here that's telling you to stay woke. Now, some of those people that's telling you to stay woke, they ain't woke up yet. Not fully, you know, but I guess every little bit helps, right? But yeah, we got to get a grasp on what's happening because, like I said, you know, what's happening on, you know, in America, in our society, you know, this is controlled by the grip of white Christianity. So, again, um, I'm challenging you guys. Go out, 
do some reading. It's much, much more that I wanted to address today. But again, I apologize for the technical difficulties we had earlier because I was on under Skype and it dropped it for some odd reason. And so I called it back in. But yeah, you know, I'm getting ready to start writing. I have that Dragon software so I can speak it and then, you know, go in and edit it later. But, you know, white evangelicals in general, the population is dwindling. They're getting older. They're dying off, whether it's, you know, disease or age or suicide, you know, just a number of things. And so um, they say between 2007 and 2015, white evangelical Protestants have slipped from being 21% of the population to 17% of the population. And, you know, some of the same things are happening with the white mainline, you know, Protestants. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's really kind of interesting. But, yeah, you know, white Christian America having some problems. I'll post some links so that you all can go out and read that. But um, next Sunday, yeah, I'll be awake. You know, I'll do a show next Sunday and um, talk to you all about some of the things that I am doing this week, maybe. And so, again, like I said, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And, you know, again, I want you guys to go out and look up the biblical roots of racism, and I'll post that article. But it's a lot more, you know, I have a lot of links. But, you know, yeah, I think next week is going to be part two about this relationship not working. You know, because there are definitely scriptures out here that they use to justify slavery and to keep people's minds enslaved and to keep them in fear. And what's so interesting is that a lot of the black churches use the same type of fear on their, you know, parishioners, their congregants. You know, had pastors, I've heard pastors say they would get up there and talk about different things from the Bible and have people so scared they were scared to move out of their seats still happening now, you know, but with the innovation and the technology, you know, um, that's changed a lot. And you got people out here asking questions and, you know, you have people out here, you know, that are coming out, you know, on a number of different levels, different platforms. And so, you know, things have changed. Things definitely have changed but they haven't changed enough. And so that's why I said this relationship ain't working for me, you know, white Christians, because you're not holding your weight. You're not, mm, no, you know, and too many of us, you know, are walking around trying to spare your feelings because, you know, again, the white tears, you know, but then you have, you know, again, your Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garveyites, you know, in these communities that will say that those people of color who talk about social justice and racial and wealth inequality, 
and you know, they would say that, well, they're just doing that because, you know, they want to make white people feel guilty. And that is the very least of what the people that I know are doing. Now, what they and their friends are doing, I can't, I can't tell you, could not tell you. But what I can say is, you know, whether they realize it or not, those white people ain't going to be there for them, and they haven't been. But you brought that on yourself. So anyway, again, thank you for listening in. I'm going to post the link for Ronnie's Christmas donation list. And if you have any questions, reach out, okay? Take it easy, everybody. Have a great Sunday. Bye-bye.